American Voters Alliance podcast. I am your host, Jacqueline Timmer, and I'm here with my co-host, Tim Griffin, who is an Amistad attorney, as well as the legislative liaison for the American Voters Alliance. So hey. glad to have you. <laughs> hey, Tim, how's it going? Amazing. Amazing. Awesome. Glad to hear it. Uh, so we're going to run through our, our kind of news highlights today as far as what we're seeing in election news. And I think this is always a really good reminder that elections are not just about the first Tuesday in November, but it's really about, it's a, it's a year round thing. And right now it's highly, highly political. And so we need to stay informed. So we're going to run through our news and our highlights and kind of what's frustrating us and all of that. And then we have a special guest today, uh, Randy Pullen out of Arizona, mm -hmm. and we're very excited to have him. Um, it was a pleasure meeting him and he just has a lot of insight around what took place in Arizona, the Arizona audit. So he'll be on, uh, for the latter part of the podcast today as well. Yeah. So, so Jacqueline, I don't know if you saw this thing with the Supreme court. This is something I would say that I'm most excited about this week. Uh, the, the North Carolina legislature, they wrote their, their legislative district maps, right? Which is, which they always do. All the legislators are supposed to, this is a responsibility of the legislature, right? It's a constitutional duty of them. And every time a state legislature writes a, a, a map, uh, you know, kind of gerrymanders, which is the way it's done. Someone's got to figure out where the lines go. Uh, some left-wing nonprofit sues and says these are illegal, these are racist, these are discriminatory, even though they're almost certainly and like never are. And so this this is what happened in North Carolina. So uh, the Supreme Court of North Carolina tells the legislature, no, we're going to write the map. Here's the map. You to take this map, and they shove it down the throat of the North Carolina legislature and the people of North Carolina. So the legislature has appealed to the United States Supreme Court, saying, hey, give us our constitutional duty back to write our own legislative district maps. Uh, for state house, for congressional maps and all that. What, will the Supreme Court take it up? That's the question right now, I think. Well, and honestly, props to the North Carolina state legislature for asserting its constitutional authority because yeah. we've seen so many state legislatures just completely abdicate their mm -hmm. responsibility, put it in advisory boards, move it to the administrative state and say, no, I, would, I don't want to touch elections. So the, the North Carolina legislature is really advocating to keep that where the constitutional responsibility belongs. Right. And then two major themes here, of course, is we have that diffusion of jurisdiction, which is happening more and more in our government. We have clarity of jurisdiction, branches of government, levels of government for a reason in order to protect the people. And more and more, there's this leftist push, push to centralize things um, more in the, the national government, um, as well as in kind of an executive administrative mm -hmm. type function. Yep. Um, and then also with that is the race card and how race has been weaponized in elections um, and wrongly so. I mean, there are racial issues in elections. We need to have equal representation as far as equal access to the polls. Uh, but with that, it's really based on population not based on race accessibility. It should be equally accessible, but, but based on population. And so this, this idea of race has really been weaponized and it's been weaponized by the left in order to counteract um, very regular everyday procedures such as using a, a photo ID, et cetera. So um, two major issues that kind of raise their head in the, in the North Carolina issue, but really excited about what North Carolina is doing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they take it up. Um, I wanted to mention Wisconsin really briefly. Uh, Justice Gableman, who was a special special counsel for the state house that led that investigation up there, um, he was he was brought in because basically uh, this happened in Arizona too, where private groups are saying release your communications, release your emails, 
Um, this happened in Arizona where the, you know, the Arizona state, uh, we're going to talk about this today with Randy Pullen, I think, uh, you know, the Arizona state Senate said, we're going to do an audit. We're going to bring in, we're going to contract a private group. We're going to contract cyber ninjas, bring them in and cyber ninjas is performing a core government function. So cyber ninjas has to hand over the court said all of their private communications. Well, Gableman is the one brought in to do this investigation. He's doing government work. So he's got to hand over the communications. Now, what's interesting to me is there was a lot of left-wing groups, right? In the 2020 election, this is your bailiwick, Jacqueline, like all these nonprofits like CTCL and CEIR, were they not performing a core government function? Should we not know what their communications are as well? Well, exactly. And, and they were performing a core government function, but also they were doing it with partisan objectives. And so they extended actually the jurisdiction of government into the private sector and completely blurred those lines altogether. So legally, it appears they really should be subject to FOIA requests because the government needs to be accountable and transparent, especially when it comes to the process of elections. And then of course, the CTCL kind of meddling in the mix of that mm -hmm. and diffusing those jurisdictional responsibilities, they really need to be held accountable. So I love that the left is already playing that card and it gives a, an opportunity and creates precedent for for firing back and saying well and and so should you you should right, be right, accountable right now okay Jacqueline this brings me this is something that is really great it really grinds my gears to be honest with you something that happened this week so we we've talked about I think we mentioned it before this Otero County New Mexico I have never been to Otero New Mexico although I hope to visit soon um, and so basically they've got like their, their elections board, their local county board. There's a three member board. It's a two Republicans, one Democrat. And after a local election recently, these, 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 they're called election commissioners, I believe in New Mexico. They said, well, we can't certify this election because there's too many outstanding questions. And some of the questions they had were, were there election machines or tabulators? Were they properly certified before the election, number one? And number two, why do we have people that we believe may be dead voters voting in this election? Until we answer these questions, we're not comfortable signing our name to this. And so the state secretary of state of New Mexico said, hey, if you guys don't certify this election, uh, I'm going to make criminal referrals to the attorney general's office. And that's exactly what the secretary of state did, referred them for criminal prosecution. And then they went to the courts and the courts, the Supreme Court of the state said, you must certify this election. And they basically, this is like 2020 all over again, right? Where we have these local election officials that are supposed to be doing their constitutional duty and evaluating an election before they certified to make sure it was done right. And now they're being threatened with jail time. So the ending of this story is that one of the commissioners changed her vote saying, I still believe everything I believed before that we should hold off on certification until we know more, but I'm being told I'll go to jail and criminally prosecuted if I don't certify this election. And what does this mean for our local elections? There is so much going on in this one scenario and, and you hit all the points. Um, we'll, we'll get to what it means for us. Of course, it means elections don't matter, but this completely parallels Michigan in 2020. Uh, you mentioned that the, the canvassing board had questions about the results, didn't think that the numbers were adding up. And then there were threats. There were, there were death threats against children, against dogs, the whole bit. Yeah, the dogs. And then, and then the certification went through. And then in, in the context of that, the, the far leftists argued, well, the canvassing board or the certifying agent, essentially, it's just an administrative duty. You're just there to, to sign off. You're just there to be the rubber stamp. But that's absolutely not true. We had the same argument when it came to the legislature in Michigan, where the, the governor locked out 
the Republicans from the people's house during the day of certifying the electors mm -hmm. saying, no, you have no part in this. You have no agency in operating in your constitutional function and duty. This is just administrative and we don't need you. We're right. just going to allow Democrats into the people's house. Right. So we're seeing this pattern when it comes to this argument as far as an administrative function just being an administerial duty, mm -hmm. but it's being done in a political manner. And then there's this weaponization of ethics and police powers on the backside. The thing that makes government completely different from from a private business is that it yields police power and so we've had these checks and balances in place and the rule of law in america in order to protect the people from that police power being used and um arbitrarily to right. enforce political ends and now we see a complete shift in that especially in the election process and it's this parallel all the way through with january 6 with some of biden's comments with the weaponization of the doj it's this pattern all the way through and now we see this happening in a local court at the local level with new mexico in the supreme court interfering and saying no you have to certify an election contrary to your conscience and yeah. contrary to the evidence or we're going to come and use the weight of the state against you right. this is insanity when it comes to america and it's absolutely appalling and people need to be concerned about this this isn't an art like a you know a small issue this really should be like a headliner issue that this pattern is taking place across the nation it pisses me off yeah, I mean, did you see that that uh, quote from the, the guy from some nonprofit? And he was like, I believe this is going to be a warning shot against those who, who vote their conscience on certification. And I hope that it is basically saying we need more people to be threatened with jail if they don't think the elections are fair. Insanity, absolute insanity. Okay, now I want to end uh, this, this whole thing on a positive note, because we do have I mean, I don't know if we should call it hero of the week, you know, election integrity star of the week, we should have like a coffee mug we send to like, the star of the it. week that did we something great. That. So uh, we're going to go to our main man, Doug Mastriano, who is the gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania right now for a certain political party. Um, he is in the state Senate. He got through it's SB uh, 573. And this basically tries to address what I call the Philadelphia problem. So in Pennsylvania, if you want to be a poll That's observer, a problem. it is a big problem. In, in Pennsylvania, if you want to be a poll observer, you have to uh, have a residence in that jurisdiction. Otherwise, you're not allowed in. Now, it's not true of attorneys as well. But Philadelphia has decided that the Philadelphia attorneys that are allowed in must also be that. So what does that mean? It means that only one political party, the Democrat party, which really controls Pennsylvania, like 8515, excuse me, controls Philadelphia, 8515, is the only one allowed into precincts and especially the central count. Um, so I think Mastriano's bill tries to address that and tries to allow both political parties. And, you know, I wouldn't care if it was a city council election in Philadelphia. I don't think that you know, somebody from the other side of the state has an interest in that. But when you have a, a, a jurisdiction as big as Philly, I mean, what happens in Philly will impact the entire state. So it seems like those people should at least be allowed to see what's going on in their state, right? Absolutely. And again, it's this trend towards a one-party system. How can you limit access of the people? How can you limit transparency in the process in order to keep a level of control? Yeah. And that's that's a problem across the board. And you know, I, I agree with kind of your your analysis there as far as well. Somebody in Pittsburgh may not really care about the Philadelphia City Council, but they're definitely going to care about the governor's race. Right. And and so that they need to be able to have access. They need to yeah. be able to see and get involved. So so like a beer koozie for Doug Mastriano, AVA. Yep. Like Love star it. of the week. That's what he <laughs> I'm writing it on Our, the list right now. Right. He's gonna be calling us now. So uh, he's yeah. gonna be calling one to know where it is. So 
Um, so yeah, so so that that's I think what's going on this week. It'll be interesting to talk to these issues as we get Randy Poland on because Randy, uh, you know, is really one of the leaders of the audit that went took place in Arizona. Remember, Arizona was was really de determined by eleven thousand votes in the twenty twenty election, and there was so many questions surrounding it that uh, the people of Arizona said, please do an audit, figure out what exactly happened. And so the state Senate brought in auditors, and Randy Poland was one of the leaders of that. I mean, he has a background. In, do, in auditing, he, he actually worked for Deloitte. So it'll be interesting to hear from him on those topics. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are still wondering, myself included, what happened after the audit? I get asked this all the time, what's going on in Arizona? So we'll be sure to ask him after. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like the, the, the mainstream media took a big cold bucket of water and just and just tried to, you know, all the fire that was going on, just it completely extinguished it. And so there's nothing to, nothing to see here, nothing to do here, but it'll be interesting to hear from him. Excellent. So let's pull Randy in here and see if we can get a little bit of insight about what's been going on in Arizona the last couple of years. Uh, Randy, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, Tim. I appreciate it. It's great. Uh, so, so can you give us a little bit of background? You've been involved in Arizona politics for a long time, well before 2020. So kind of describe to people who you are and, and what your background is a little bit, if you don't mind. Right. I actually got started in Arizona politics back about uh, 2000. Okay, and that was with the uh, starting out with the, the Bush campaign uh, and McCain, and I worked through all that. Then I uh, was a precinct committee man, uh, became the national committee man for Arizona, and then I became the state chairman of the Arizona party. And then in 2009, I became the treasurer of the Republican National Committee. So uh, from a political side, I've seen a lot. Uh, and but I will also tell you that when I was chairman back in the day, and we're talking to uh, two elections, 2008 and 2010, that we saw plenty of issues that were going on with the voter rolls. Mm -hmm. So what we essentially have been talking about over the last year and a half or so was nothing new. It was not unknown. I talked to several supervisors at the county and I told them, I thought the major problem was going to be the voter rolls that we had people voting that should not be voting and they acknowledged it. So it wasn't like they didn't know we had problems with the voter rolls. Okay. So, so let me cut in if I can, Jacqueline, sure. because, because I think voter rolls is really how this all starts, right? Because if you don't have bloated voter rolls, you can't allow fraudulent votes to come in. And so this is a really interesting conversation. Um, and, and Arizona is a different state. And one of the issues I think going on right now and Jacqueline, I don't know if you've been following this, but uh, there's this issue of what they believe is illegal immigrants registering to vote. And the registration form in Arizona is a little bit different. And so there was some kind of, and Randy, I'm not sure I understand it completely. There was some kind of a law that was recently passed saying that when you register voters in Arizona on the federal form, it needs to be a little bit different to accommodate Arizona. And that deals with registering voters. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. There, there's actually, so there's two, literally it's almost like there's two voter rolls. Uh, you have the federal uh, so you have the federal ballot, which just has federal races on it. So that would be congressmen, senators, president, that would be on that ballot. And the purpose originally for that ballot was to deal with the military overseas. Okay, so you could, so the federal government could get them a ballot. That was the original purpose. We in Arizona passed an initiative in 2004. It's an initiative I ran called uh, protect Arizona now. And essentially it said you had to have voter ID in order 
to vote in state elections. Okay, so it bifurcated and that's what happened is we had federal elections and we had state elections. Now, if you registered at the state level and were official, that means you could vote for everything. But if you only registered at the federal level, that means you could only vote in the federal, right. level, not the state level elections. Right. And so when you go and you look at the federal form that you just have to say, yes, I'm a citizen and sign it and they accept it. Right. Okay. In Arizona that you don't get that in Arizona, you have to really prove you got uh, not only residency and citizenship. And how do you prove you have citizenship? Well, MVD, when they issue you a driver's license, uh, it says you're a citizen. Okay. Okay. Besides being a resident. Okay. So, and that's and that's what uh, the Fed, feds have been fighting with. And that's what the Democrats have been fighting with in terms of turning everything into the federal ballot, which means that you would never have to prove that you were a citizen right. or a resident. Right. Right. Okay. And so that's that's the battle. Okay. So th this is what's going on right now with with voter rolls, and this is kind of the issue of 2022 in Arizona, right? Well, it's it's more than just Arizona; it's across the country. Yeah. Okay. So the same federal laws impact everywhere. Uh, yeah. So that's what we're doing. Uh, we're we're trying to. I'll just go back when we were. This goes back to February, March of of 2021 when we were first, first getting started on the audit. And I didn't think it was very likely we were gonna find 50,000 ballots that came in from China through the side door. I didn't right. think that was very likely, but it could have happened. So you need to check, okay? Right. But, uh, and then there was this issue about, oh, well, some of the paper is, is uh, from, came from China and we didn't, there wasn't any of that, okay? But I, what I will tell you is that the, and don't, and don't forget, 90% of the vote in Arizona is done early voting. Okay, only 10% is at the polls. Okay, so 90% uh, of the ballots were on approved paper. Right. 10% that weren't, uh, that they started out on approved paper, but what happened is they ran out of ballots and because they changed all the laws. So it didn't matter which voting center you walked into, you could vote there. And so if I was, if I lived in Tucson, I could walk into a Phoenix voting location and vote. Okay, now there were some issues with that, but it could be done. So that was the problem. They did run out of paper at some of the uh, sites and they had to go out and get more paper in order to print more ballots. Okay, but that, I mean, but there is a chain of custody on all that to show that they did that. Right. So they did do that properly. So there were different kinds of paper yeah, that we found. So, in, but well, let me back in. Tim, so yeah, I, go ahead. Go. I, I want to jump in here really quick. And th this is kind of to, to summarize almost, yeah. but there are so many interesting points that are converging in what you're talking about right now. Because one of the key themes that we talk about at American Voters Alliance is this wasn't just a 2020 thing. There's been an oh. issue with the voter rolls. There's been an issue with the system mm -hmm. for an extended period of time yeah. that comes to Bush v. Gore. We're, we're tracking it back to Bush v. Gore. So your timeline is really interesting as far as what we've been finding in our research. And so there's kind of this convergence here. And then the fact that this really isn't an external foreign interference problem that we're finding so much as an internal interference problem with the skew in the way that things are being administered in a breakdown of um, checks and balances 
from everything from voter rolls to mass mail-in voting and not having a proper regulation around that. So um, I just wanted to highlight those points because you're really touching on a lot of what we I, emphasize at American Voters Alliance. I totally agree with what you just said. I mean, it, this it was there was always was a problem with uh, the voter rolls. I mean, we can go back to the 1960 election and see all the dead people in Chicago who voted, you know, for Kennedy. Okay, but, mm -hmm. but when it really became a serious serious problem is when we started doing early voting and mail-in voting. Yes. Because then the whole system could be corrupted, and the processes they have in place to check the uh, the voter rolls is just inadequate. And I'm being polite. Right. Right. And it can so, be corrupted to scale because if it's not being counted oh, at the precinct level. Example. Jack, let me give you a simple exact. I became aware in the 2008 election that there, uh, what was going on is uh, last minute, uh, an hour before the, you had to turn in all the ballot early ballots, uh, a truck would show up at uh, recorder's offices and would have a truckload of ballots in it, which they would drop off, okay, for, for the election. And so because it was the last moment, they didn't have enough time in their minds to check the signatures on the ballots. So they didn't check the signatures. They just pulled the ballots out of the envelopes mm -hmm. and counted them. I became aware that that was going on. And so in the 2010 election, uh, I sent attorneys out to those sites to be there when those trucks showed up with the ballots and make sure that they checked the signatures. Okay. And they, we did that. We stopped it. And because it was an attorney that was standing there and not just some a volunteer, they had to pay attention to it. And that's what you need to understand is in all this stuff, you need to have legal there all the time because they're the ones that can stop stuff. And, and so we did. We stopped that from happening uh, on, on several sites. And the, uh, the funny thing was the, uh, the recorder from Pima County was so upset over it that she called up the secretary of state i.e. Ken Bennett. And then Ken Bennett calls me and says, what's going on? Then I explain it to him. He just starts to laugh. He said, okay, fine. And that was the end of it. Okay. Uh, but those were the, and so when we came to this election and the big thing here, Jacqueline, as you know, is we had this emergency COVID thing where exactly. they changed all the election rules and procedures at the last moment and let's highlight that for a second because you, you just explained how you have to have certain laws in place and to follow them in order for the checks and balances to actually work and then we get to 2020 and there's this unilateral shift in those election laws that remove any precautions around fraudulent activity so do you do you see and i i think this is where you're going and i'm sorry but do you see 2020 is distinct in that sense where a lot of these rules and regulations were just completely thrown overboard. Does that distinguish 2020 from some of this earlier issue that we've seen previously? Uh, well, yes, it, it made it easier to cheat. I mean, one of the things we stopped in Arizona was when you showed up to the polls with an early ballot to drop it off, you could only have two, yours and like your mother's or something with you. But then you saw what was going on in selection. They were driving up to these boxes and just throwing in tons of ballots again. So what we were, what we stopped in 2008, I mean, 10, and then changed the law. So you couldn't do that. 
they completely threw it out the door and allowed it all again. So, uh, and who's and, who's they in Arizona for this? Was this a judicial decision, like a friendly lawsuit, or was this a clerk's decision in the name of COVID? Who was the kind of? Uh, it, you know, first of all, we had the governor declared emergency, right? And then second of all, we had the supervisors at the county who, who then followed up on it. And then we had the recorders who are the, who's the election official. Right. And, and it's the recorder that started changing all these rules at the last second, allowing these boxes and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, so again, it was just, uh, should never have been done, uh, you know, but what, as we know, Jacqueline, politics comes first, right? Gotta look good. <laughs> So, Sadly so. Go ahead, Tim. Sorry. Yeah, I want to set the stage so everyone understands, you know, we're, we're entering the 2020 election. Everybody knows that COVID hit and, every, and all the rules change. And Arizona had a Republican, and, and we're nonpartisan, but I want to set the stage. Arizona's got a Republican governor, a Republican legislature, uh, but then they have a Secretary of State, uh, Katie Hobbs, who is a very leftist Democrat. And then you have the county recorder's office, which Randy mentioned, and that's kind of like the elections clerk, what they call the elections clerk in Arizona. But Arizona is kind of different than most states because everybody, and Randy, correct me, but like half this, more than half the state lives uh, in that one county in Maricopa County. So you've got Adrian Fontes at that time, who's the county recorder, who is also a left-leaning Democrat. So the biggest county is controlled by a Democrat recorder. The whole state is uh, on elections and the whole state is controlled by the secretary of state, who is a, a hard left Democrat. It's two thirds of the people live in Maricopa County. Two thirds, right. So, so, so what kind of, tell us about going into that. What do you mean as far as? That, so, so you've got the two. tried to stop it. I mean, they, they made these rule changes and it wasn't just Maricopa County, it did in other counties too. Uh, we tried to stop it, but we couldn't stop it because of the emergency issue. Okay, so essentially they just ignored it. And, and here's what you know, and, and this is the reality of it. When they're running elections, counties, what do they care about? Do they care how accurate it is? Kinda, but what they really care about is they have everything done and they can go like this on election night and say, we got it over with and everything was fine. That's, so it's a political thing. It's not a do it properly thing. I mean, when we did the audit, I mean, we found all kinds of things where they violated their own procedures and rules. Uh, and they and nothing was done about it. Well, let's can we go back to election night and explain what it was like? Uh, you know, election night, election week. Uh, with you know, I know that Arizona allowed the curing of ballots for days after the election. Yes. So my understanding is that the names of outstanding mail-in ballots were given out to the candidates or the parties, and they were allowed to go out there. And, and I understand there was there was an article that talked about Californians coming in and actually going out there to to get these people to get their ballots in after the election was over. Well, it was more than Californians. We had uh, Democrats come in from all over the country that flew in and were actually at voting centers, okay? And they were being paid for to be there, okay? So they're not even Arizonans, they're external, all right? So that was going on uh, as well. And again, it just, come, I mean, we had a, a huge voter turnout. I mean, clearly it was, there was a lot of excitement in the election to begin with anyway. And so this just added to that whole, situation. Uh, but again, I'll just go back to the audit. I mean, we found plenty of issues and problems with the election. 
Well, uh, that's why I wanted to kind of mention the election here. And I'm looking at the Arizona off of Politico, the 2020 results, right? Because you've got 49.4% uh, for Biden, 49.1% for Trump. So, uh, you know, 1.6 million versus 1.6 million. I mean, this is a very tight race that came down uh, in Arizona, right? And this is what- County, it was less than 11,000 votes. Right. Okay. So is that what is that what helped trigger the audit and why why Arizona thought it was so important to do an audit? Well, well, excuse me, let me re rephrase that. The difference statewide was about eleven thousand, so that could easily be flipped in Maricopa County. Okay, the actual difference in the vote in Mar Maricopa County between Biden and and Trump was greater than that, is about forty thousand. But it doesn't matter. Eleven thousand statewide changes the results of the election. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so, sorry, I didn't want to cut you off, Randy. So, so that, so at some point, there's so many questions surrounding the election that there becomes pressure on the legislature from the citizens of Arizona to do something, right? And so, at, at some point, uh, Karen Fan, who was the Senate Senate President in Arizona, decided to take action, and they voted to do an audit. Is that right? Correct. We started out with going back to December of 2020. We did a big event downtown. Uh, Rudy Giuliani and uh, uh, Dr. Shiva and many, many others uh, were there either in person or in a Zoom meeting going over what they saw had happened. And then that was used to uh, promote it with the legislature to move forward. Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the House, refused. Uh, but Karen Pham in the Senate decided they would move forward with it. And so that's what happened. It was... It, and, and so they contracted with a group called Cyber Ninjas and they came in uh, with a lot of auditing expertise and computer expertise and came in and, and performed that audit uh, on behalf of the Senate, right? They did come in. I will. Okay. You have to understand my background is I was an, a partner with Deloitte and Touche. So I did audits. In fact, I actually uh, did a forensic audit for the uh, U.S. government of okay. the Bank of New England. So I understand exactly how these things are undertaken. And, and Randy, would you, sorry to interrupt, but would you mind explaining a little bit about what a forensic audit yeah, is and how that yeah. operates? Because I feel like there's a lot of confusion when somebody uses the term audit, right? because it can be applied in so many different ways. So could you speak to the specificity of what a forensic audit is, how you would recommend approaching that from your expert opinion? And then um, we can we can get back to the Arizona audit, but I'd love to contextualize that a bit. Yeah, well, uh, the bottom line of a forensic audit is it's it's a legal audit. In other words, legal is involved. And we were doing our audit. There was a, a, an attorney on the floor at all times when the vote counting was going on who was available. If there was any issues that came up, he would come over and look at it, record it, and make sure that uh, it was uh, dealt with. And so that's essentially what you do. Uh, a forensic audit doesn't mean you look at every ballot, okay, or you look at every financial transaction. What you're looking for are where there's issues and problems, okay, and you focus on those areas. Uh, you know, so when they decided to do the audit in Arizona, they decided they're going to do a full hand count of the ballots, okay, so that kind of launched it. Uh, it wasn't really necessary to start out that way. But, you know, it, it ended up that way. I mean, we could have very easily gone in and done some heavy duty uh, percentage checking on things and we would have found where the issues were. Okay, and I'll tell you where the issues were as we go on here. 
you know, so we did do a, uh, a hand count of all the ballots and the results, as you know, were not much different from what the county re reported, just a couple hundred difference. And then I did a machine count of all the ballots again, just to go through it and make sure that uh, the count of total ballots was correct. And again, it was just off a couple hundred insignificant amount. Okay, so we did all of that. Okay, uh, but again, we knew, I knew in the supervisors, recorders, everybody knows the problem is with the voter rolls, which mm -hmm. are corrupt, because they do not do a job of keeping right. them clean. Okay, and so that's where the issue was. Right. And then we kind of shifted gears, because we had the envelopes. Okay, we had the envelopes. And so then the Senate hired Dr. Shiva to do an analysis of, of the uh, envelopes, which we did. And we found all kinds of problems. Uh, again, uh, I don't know if you want to get into the details of what we did, but the bottom line was we discovered over 200,000 envelopes that should have been checked, you know, and, and that means calling up the voters and confirming things. And they weren't, they only did about 25,000, should have been over 200,000 that were cured. That's huge. That's absolutely huge because I mean, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that recounts don't necessarily demonstrate or, or prove the question of fraud, so to speak, because the issues in the voter rolls, you're going to just count any of the ballots that came in and count them again. You're going to have that same count. But as you're assessing the, essentially the, um, verification, the identity verification of these voters that how many came into question again? Was that 200,000? It was over 200,000 uh, that we discovered. And we were being very conservative. Okay. And I can explain it to you how we did it. There's uh, so we had two groups that were using to do the count, uh, excuse me, to do the signature verification. We had some experts. We had three experts who did this for a living, okay? And then we had three novices that we trained using the Maricopa County's election procedures, checking procedures. And so we had two different groups that, and then we went through and we picked a selected, a number of ballots to look at. And we, and we didn't just say, well, let's pick these or these. We did it numerically, okay? So it was done with an algorithm. So it was a representation of the total uh, ballots. Okay, and so then we had the two groups look at the ballots independently and evaluate the signatures. Okay, now I'll tell you what the real problem is here. And again, this goes back to a serious problem in this election, which is the county who was being audited refused to cooperate. Right. I right. will tell you this, when I was doing the forensic audit of Bank of New England, they knew that if they didn't do everything I asked them to do, I could make one phone call and the FBI would be there to take them away. Okay, but we couldn't do that with the county. And so they did not give us their signatures that they used to compare that they to test signatures with. And so we had to go find signatures. And I came up with a way to do that because uh, all deeds of trust and any legal documents have signatures on them, notarized. Okay, so we got those signatures and compared them. All right, so it wasn't the same signatures the county might have had. Uh, quite frankly, our signatures were probably higher quality because they were notarized signatures. Right. Okay, and so the two different groups looked at all of these. 
Now the uh, the experts that do this, they they came up with almost fifty percent of them they rejected. Okay, wow. non-experts, they came up with a lot lower uh, level. They were at twenty-eight percent. Okay, but what we did is we said, okay, what we're going to do is all six people. If they all agree that the signature is invalid, we will then say that's a bad signature. Okay, so they all had to agree on it. And when we did that, that obviously took the number down a lot. Okay, and it, it came down to about 11%. Okay, so that's yeah, over 200,000. But the margin of error there is still extremely high. Yeah. Very. Now, the, here's the issue because it's 90% early voting. Okay, once they pull the ballot out of the envelope, there's no way of knowing how that vote was cast. Right. And that's the problem. And that's why we had to stop them in counties in 2010 from pushing through the ballots without checking signatures. Okay, and now uh, and what we know is that uh, there is a process for checking the signatures at the county levels. But what happens is they get closer and closer to the end of the election, they reduce how many checks they do on them. And so it goes from 20 points they're looking at down to zero that get checked because they just push them through to get it over with. Okay, that's totally violating state law, but they do it because again, it's down to what are they concerned about? Well, yeah, the, the political aspect, but also, you know, that's so huge because what we, what we've seen in some of our research is certain jurisdictions will report numbers early and then other jurisdictions will drag out their numbers later and later and later. But that allows for you to understand as a candidate, what that difference or, or margin is, so to speak, that you have to overcome in order for that election to win that election. So with what you're talking about with these kind of late night pushes with ballots and removing those verifications, you could do that for a targeted area or jurisdiction and push a lot of votes through. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, You're exactly have have you seen that kind of imbalance with the way that things are being administered in that process? It, it could, that could be a problem. Very, very clearly could be a problem. Uh, but, it, but again, uh, we're talking about early ballots, which are 90% which get turned in versus the 10% on election day. Right, right, right. So the 90%, they, they're pretty much, except for this election where they were accepting them after the, the election, uh, get checked ahead of time. And that's part of what we're trying to do with some state laws here. It's make it very clear that uh, the uh, early ballots have to be turned in like five days before the election. Uh, and they have to be postmarked like that as well. If uh, they have to be postmarked and received within five days, five days out. And, and so what the Democrats are trying to do in Arizona is change the law. So again, you can, <laughs> you can do it on election day. All right. So if, it, if, if the ballot shows up in an envelope and it's postmarked on election day, but they get it five days later, they're still going to count it. So that's the type of stuff we're trying to stop. And the way I always put it to people is, you know, we all have the right to get a driver's license, you know, and drive a car, okay? But there's a process you have to go through to get that. 
doesn't mean your right was taken away. It means you have to comply. Well, it's no different with, with the voters voting. You have to. You right, have right. the right to vote, but you need to comply with the laws. And you know how this all got started was the whole issue of discrimination against blacks in southern states and other states where they were using that to stop them from registering to vote. And so that's how that was overcome. But it's like everything. They overcame that, but they didn't put in place any rules that were reasonable. So it's out of control. That's the problem. Right. Well, and with that, you know, you really highlighted a major issue for us, which is disparate impact or disparate treatment of the vote or the, the ballot or the voter. And so, you know, coming out of the civil rights movement, there was this removal of polling places from predominantly black areas, heavily putting polling places in predominantly white areas in the Democrat South. And so now we're seeing almost the, the inverse of that, where again, but it's falling along political ideological lines where the CTCL and the Mark Zuckerberg funds and some of these nonprofits have put those, those funds into predominantly leftist areas for voter turnout in coordination with election offices, and then removed it from more conservative rural areas. So that disparate impact point that you touch on there is huge. And I, I think that we've missed the application and understanding of that, of how it's actually shaping our elections. Because you know, you've hit on the, the politicalization of elections, but actually for true politics to exist in a nation where we have discussion about different ideas and thought, we have to have secure elections. And now our elections, not necessarily in a novel way, but in a more extreme way than we've seen recent in recent history, our elections are becoming largely political. Um, with that, I, I'm very curious in Arizona because, you know, with the audit, everybody was watching the audit and then things kind of dropped off publicly. What is taking place in Arizona? You mentioned some, some potential um, legislation with new policy, some of that, but, but why was there such a stark drop off after the audit when all eyes were on Arizona? Well, that's a great question. And that really goes back to, um, again, it's a, if it's a forensic audit, it has to be legal. So our, so we did everything on our side legally. So at that point, it gets turned over to the attorney general and the attorney general has to move forward with reviews, everything you, and they did, they did look through everything. And then the attorney general has to bring uh, charges. Okay, he hasn't done that. But once we did all that, we did our report, public report back in September, and all that went to the AG's office for him to follow up on. Has the AG initiated not, investigation in, in response to your report? Initiated an investigation, but nothing so far has come out of it. Right. And of course, you have to know he's running for U.S. Senate, too. So, uh, again, this is uh, so it's not that we stop being involved. It's because I'm still involved to a certain degree. Uh, but it really became the attorney general's responsibility because we had the evidence, we gave it to him. Right, and and how huge, right? I mean, Phil, my dad, he always talks about prosecutorial power and how much discretion they have in those offices, whether you're an attorney general or district attorney, you really get to decide what you pursue. And so that either adds legitimacy or detracts legitimacy, even though there might be something extremely viable in the investigation process, those offices can become really politicized through the Vera Institute and others. Um, so that's, that's really fascinating. I, oh, 
sorry, notification. Um, with, with that, you know, what are, what are your next steps? What are the grassroots next steps? How do you create, uh, unfortunately, the political pressure or the climate in order to be able to, I mean, see these things through because it takes further investigation to understand if fraudulent activities actually occurred. Well, yeah, it's like everything, it becomes political. Uh, and so we're working on getting a Republican electric, elected secretary of state. So you can put in procedures to oversee what the counties are doing, making sure they're following through with what they're supposed to be doing, their own procedures and rules. Okay. Uh, two, we need a governor who understands that that's an issue. And I, I think that the Republican candidates we have, all of them understand it. They get it. Okay, so that's underway, but there's something else that's going on here that's critical. Uh, so there's an initiative underway right now being funded by the left to basically, as I said earlier, uh, make elections free and fair is what they call it, right? And basically it just says no rules, nothing, show up. You can register the vote on election day. <clears throat> what kind of a mess is that? I mean, yeah, you know, right. technically under law, you have to prove you're a citizen. And that was passed an initiative, you know, 18 years ago. So they're trying to overturn all that. Yep. Okay. And so there was a Republican group that came along and said, oh, we see what they're doing. So we're going to run an initiative too. And I've been saying for a year and a half that the only way to resolve all this is through uh, initiative of vote of the people. And, and so they tried to do an initiative, but here's what happened. The Democrat sources, they bought up all the signature gatherers on the petitions. And so you could not then go out and get your 350,000 signatures to get it on the ballot. And so then they had to turn it in on our side. They had to turn it into a referendum, which means the legislature passes it out, doesn't need the governor's signature, then it goes to a vote of the people. Right. And we're working on that right now to get it through the legislature. And all three major Republican candidates have all signed on to it, supporting it. Okay. And so we're trying to get this referendum out to counter the initiative that the Democrats are doing. But Randy, I, we hear from people all the time in Arizona and they say, oh, I wish they would do more. I wish the governor Ducey would do more. But I, I really think that Arizona has passed some of the strongest reforms in the country over the last two years. I mean, they, they've banned private yeah. funding of public elections. There was a bill this year, I think, that's passed into law that requires them to announce the, the names and the number of registered voters prior to an election and then also announce who voted after the election by precinct. There's a lot of great things out there. Yeah, well, you know what? This this initiative that the Democrats are running through would do away with all that. <laughs> okay. Okay. So that's the point of it, which is okay. in the referendum we're trying to get through uh, would have all those same things in it. And so what it comes down to is the vote of the people. If the referendum gets more votes than the initiative does, well, then the referendum takes precedent over the initiative. Okay. Okay. Got it. Interesting. Got it. Um, Randy, before I know we talked about the audit, can you just real briefly, um, I know that there was, an, there was an audit that came out from the, I believe the Auditor General of Arizona that talked about the private funding issue. And I think Katie Hobbs got about $5 million to use to promote mail-in voting and suppress in-person voting, number one. And then number two, I wanted to ask uh, if, you're, if the audit revealed anything about machine certification prior to the 2020 election in regards to the tabulators used to count votes. Yeah, uh, well, I don't know if I can say much about the five million that Katie Hobbs got. I mean, 
that, that's not what was intended with the money, what she did. Okay, but uh, the more important thing really is the machines, the Dominion machines. There's all kinds of issues with those machines. They were not certified before the election. They were certified after the election. <laughs> they weren't probably going to be certified at all, but it became clear that we were going to do an audit. Then they had people come in and certify the machines after the election. So how do you know the software that was used during the election is the same as what was on them after the election? You don't. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that becomes the issue. And there's more issues with, with regard to the machines uh, because there's two ways to access all those tabulators to Dominion equipment. You can do it through the county's way, which use their password and you log into it and you can see what's going on. But the real guts of how all that works is on the Dominion side and you have to have their login, which they refused to give us. So there was no real way to check the tabulators to make sure that they were properly run. Okay, so, and so then the other thing we wanted was to see the router to see if there was access to those machines during the election. And they wouldn't give us access to the routers because they said, oh, well, there's sensitive information on there from the sheriff's office, which is BS. That's just not the case, okay? But they didn't want us to have those. And so they didn't give it to us. So our experts are, we had some really good experts with regard to that stuff. They, they, they couldn't see any of that. Okay, but they, what they could see, they could see that there were issues. Okay, then they hired uh, a master to come in afterwards, uh, that, which we had no control over, you could say, to, to kind of check the routers and the logs and that kind of stuff. Okay, but we were never ever, our people never were able to get access any of that information and that's the problem so again it comes back to what i said earlier you cannot conduct an audit of someone if they're not cooperating okay and you have to have in place and i made this very clear during the audit that we have to put in place laws that say if the county does not cooperate they just committed a crime and they're going to jail they're going to get arrested and taken away so they understand that there's consequences for not cooperating in an election audit. Um, I've got a final question. Uh, I don't know if yeah. you have any final wrap-up questions. Um, well, I just I just want to point out, I think that's a huge takeaway because the government is supposed to be accountable to the people and we need accountability and transparency in the election process for people to have faith in the results. If we don't have faith in the results, what are we? And so I, I just think that that's a tremendous takeaway. And I think you really hit the nail on the head when you're talking about the need to have an equal and even playing field um, with security in the elections. That doesn't take away from accessibility. That actually reinforces the voice of the American people. So I think that's huge. Yeah. Uh, Randy, if, my final question. In, in North Carolina, in Nevada, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, the election laws are exactly the same today as they were during the 2020 election. Is Arizona better off now than it was in 2020? Is it safer? Is it more transparent? Is it more fair? Is it more? Is it less likely to be hacked? Tell, is, are we in a better position now in Arizona or not? I think it's a better position. Uh, and I'll tell you, the main reason is because all the county supervisors are now focused on it. They realize that what a terrible problem this can be, and they need to make sure it's cleaner. So they're, they're more focused on it. 
than they have in the past. And the new recorder in Maricopa County, Richter, he's trying to clean stuff up, although he's saying there's nothing wrong here, but you can see he's cleaning things up, straightening things out. So I think it's gonna be better. Uh, and we'll see how that, I mean, the ballots go out here in another 10 days. We'll have the ballots will be out in the mail. So uh, it's coming. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much. This was really enjoyable for me. I feel like I got a much better understanding of Arizona. That's like the mystery state to me. I kind of, I feel like I get lost in Arizona, but a lot was clarified today and really appreciate your time and your leadership and your insight. I just maybe say one more thing. Yeah. And that is there are a, a number of these audit, at least they call themselves auditors nationally. They are not auditors. When they come in and do their audit, basically, the county already says, well, these are the ballots you're going to look at. They pre-pick them. So they already know before the election which ballot sec sections are going to be picked. And so guess what? They, everybody knows that those are the ones you have to make sure are good. The rest of them doesn't matter. This is a precinct issue. It needs to be resolved at the precinct level, not at the top level like that. And so, again, that's uh, you cannot trust those auditors. Uh, I mean, they do not do a, what I would call an audit as a former audit partner with Deloitte and Touche. And so another thing that we need is going forward is we need to really establish some audit companies that will follow through and do this properly and put in place laws that if they don't do it properly, they're going to go to jail. I always had to deal with that. I had to do everything properly. If you didn't, you had all kinds of consequences to your actions. And that needs to be there in place as well. I, I'll just give you one more side, which is I tried to get one of the large uh, accounting firms to come in and get involved in this. They, ha they had no interest. They did not want to get involved because they knew what the consequences of that would be politically. Randy, I, I, that's why I appreciate you so much and what you're doing is you know, we have to fight for this country. And, and it's kind of sometimes you wait for the Calvary to come, but you look around and you realize that you are the Calvary. I mean, we have to fight for this country and our children and our grandchildren. And I really appreciate everything that you've done to put your name on the line to make sure that we have clean and fair elections. So thank you. Well, thank you, Tim. I appreciate your having me today. Thank Great. you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening this week. Uh, Jacqueline, I thought Randy Pullen was fascinating to listen to. I really appreciate his leadership. Um, please keep turning in uh, for our, our American Voters Alliance podcast next week. I think we're going to have, uh, uh, I don't want to give it away, Jacqueline, but I think we're going to have a Secretary of State candidate from a major state on next week uh, who really has uh, knows a lot of what's going on. So I think that'll be really interesting, too. And guys, if you, Jacqueline, if you don't mind, I think we should start asking people to submit names for this election integrity hero of the week or whatever we're going to call it. Yeah, we need a title. We need we need, yeah, we need a title. We need a nomination process. Right. We need like a pen, like to yeah. get up to the star. I don't know. I They're, like the mug. I like the mug. The Although mug. I, I'm kind of a mug junkie, so. They're going to be clamoring for it. The people are yeah. going to demand it, as Mary would say. So it'll be it'll be fun. It'll be fun. So yeah, please submit if you have people that that are going above and beyond in your state that are on election integrity issues. Let us know. And uh, that's all. So Jacqueline and I will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>